You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual My favorite thing that happened last week, well, actually, I think it's my second or third favorite thing, after Marine Le Pen getting her anti-immigrant, anti-EU, anti-gay marriage ass handed to her by a hot guy in a non-traditional marriage, and maybe after a series of photographs that a friend in Europe has been sharing with me over the course of the last week, my third favorite thing that happened last week was something Donald Trump said to the Prime Minister of Australia. Trump is being Trump at the start of this clip, and I'm sorry, I apologize in advance, you're going to have to listen to Donald Trump's voice for just a second. I know that's triggering for some folks. Here's your trigger warning. Trump is being Trump at the start of this clip. At first, every word that comes out of his disgusting mouth is a big lie, but at the end of the clip, Trump accidentally tells the truth. Could get maybe even better. It's a very good bill right now. The premiums are going to come down very substantially. The deductibles are going to come down. It's going to be fantastic health care. Right now, Obamacare is failing. We have a failing health care. I shouldn't say this to our great gentleman and my friend from Australia because you have better health care than we do. Yes. Yes, that is true. Australia has a better health care system than we do. Absolutely, Mr. President. Right you are. Australia has universal health care, single-payer, government-run health care. They call it Medicare, and as CNN reported, it gives citizens, quote, free access to doctors and public hospitals. Backing up quickly to the start of the clip and all those lies, Paul Krugman said it best in yesterday's New York Times, quote, Trump care breaks every promise Republicans made about health. Deductibles will rise, not fall. Premiums may fall for a handful of young, healthy, affluent people, but will rise for those who are older, sicker, or poorer, many people with pre-existing conditions will find insurance either completely unavailable or totally out of their financial reach. Now, jumping back to Australia's healthcare system, it's not really free, of course. Nothing is free. Australian citizens pay for Medicare. All taxpayers pay 2% of their income to support the Medicare system in Australia, and wealthy Australians pay an additional 1% of their income. Healthcare in Australia is free the same way roads and bridges and sidewalks in Australia are free. Everyone gets to use them because everyone pays for them. Which brings us to something Paul Ryan said a few weeks ago. And I apologize after inflicting Donald Trump's voice on you. I'm also going to inflict a little bit of Paul Ryan on you. The, the fatal conceit of Obamacare is that we're just going to make everybody buy our health insurance at the federal government level. Young and healthy people are going to go into the market and pay for the older, sicker people. So the young, healthy person is going to be made to buy health care, and they're going to pay for the person, you know, who gets breast cancer in her 40s or who gets heart disease in his 50s. So take a look at this chart. The red slice here are what I would call people with pre-existing conditions, people who have real health care problems. The blue is the rest of the people in the individual market. That's the market where people don't get health insurance at their jobs, where they buy it themselves. The whole idea of Obamacare is the people on the blue side pay for the people on the red side. The people who are healthy pay for the people who are sick. It's not working, and that's why it's in a death spiral. Yeah, people who are healthy 
pay to cover people who are sick. That is literally how health insurance works. That's how all insurance works. Homeowners insurance, people whose houses don't burn down, pay to rebuild houses of people whose homes did burn down. Car insurance, people who don't get in accidents or haven't gotten into an accident, pay to cover the medical and legal liabilities of people who have gotten into car accidents. Health insurance is like homeowners insurance and car insurance, except when it comes to health, everyone gets sick and everyone dies. That's what Ryan conveniently leaves out. Everyone is going to get sick eventually. Very few of us are lucky enough to die instantly and without ever having had to see a doctor or stay in a hospital ever in our lives. Even if you are one of the lucky ones, even if a piano falls on your ass and you are squashed to death in an instant, the people you love, your parents, your siblings, your kids, they're going to need health care most likely. Not everyone you know is going to get squished flat by a fucking piano in a Looney Tunes cartoon and go out that way. It is a big lie. The, the, the way Republicans frame the healthcare debate is just a big lie and it's told as a means to the GOP end in all things, which is slashing taxes for the wealthy. And health isn't the only place where the GOP pushes this kind of tragical, magical thinking. Other people might need X, but you don't. So why should you have to pay for it? Why should you pay for schools your kids don't attend? Why should you pay for health care when you might never get sick and you might never die? Why should you support higher taxes on the wealthy? This is America, after all, and you're not going to want to pay those taxes once you get rich, right? Yeah, but if you think about it for a split second, which apparently no one in the GOP base has ever done, even if you don't have kids... You need other people's kids to get a fucking education because other people's kids are the nurses, engineers, lawyers, doctors, taxpayers that you're going to rely on in the future. We all need health insurance because I'm sorry to tell you, we are all going to get sick and we are all going to die. And the wealthy should pay their fair share of taxes, the fair share that you should pay if you get wealthy, which despite myths about upward mobility in the American dream, you almost certainly won't. They tell these lies because they're con artists. They tell these lies because the GOP exists to do one thing. Slash taxes on the wealthiest Americans. Period. Full stop. And to do that, they will stand back and watch you die. They will stand back and watch your poorly educated or uneducated kids die. They will starve all public services to pour more money into the coffers of the wealthiest Americans, to relieve the tax burden on those whose tax burden has gotten lighter and lighter and lighter over the past 40 years. Remember that while you listen to Trump lie and Paul Ryan lie about what they're doing. They're not crafting a better, more humane healthcare system with access for all. When they say access for all, they just mean anybody who has the money can buy it, which is like saying, I have access to Brad Pitt's dick because he's wearing pants with a zipper and anybody can unzip his pants if you have access to that zipper, which I don't. You will not have access to health care if you have a pre-existing condition because you will not be able to afford the rates that they charge. And that is by design. They don't want you to be able to afford those rates because making health care impossible for you to purchase means they can slash taxes on the wealthiest Americans, which is what it's all about. We've got to stop falling for this. Jumping back to Australia, yeah, they have a better healthcare system than we do. They have single payer. They have universal healthcare. That is what we should have. That is what we deserve. And Australia isn't the only country in the world with this kind of healthcare system. Most Western industrialized nations have them, have universal 
healthcare, including two countries that, according to the GOP, can literally do no wrong. Those two countries are, of course, Israel, which has a universal healthcare system that covers also abortion, and Vatican City, which has a universal healthcare system. They don't cover abortion, Vatican City, and their healthcare system, of course, because ultra boys can't get pregnant. All right, coming up on today's show, sex, 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 lots of your sex questions, lots of my sex answers. Stick around. Hi, Dan. I'm a 31-year-old woman living in the Midwest, and I have a question about sex drive. So my boyfriend, we've been together for about four months, um, and when we first got together, the sex was really, really good, like definitely the best sex I've ever had. Um, But his sex drive has just kind of stopped completely, just nothing. And while that's fine for now, we're trying to figure out, you know, what do you do about this? I've done some reading, and so we know that maybe we could set a day of the week, that sex day. I know also you talk about, you know, this idea of, like, just doing it and seeing if that helps. I feel kind of awkward suggesting that as his partner. Um, and then obviously also trying, you know, to get high and see if that helps. So we know those are things we can do. Um, but what else? What I, I'm trying to find other things we can try. Do you have any suggestions? My first suggestion would be to rewind the tape. I guess podcasts aren't on tape, but to rewind it using your rewind podcast feature and listen to yourself. Listen particularly to this. While that's fine for now. And let's listen to that again. Fine for now. It doesn't sound fine. The tone of your voice does not communicate things are fine for now or at all. You're four months into this relationship and the sex was great. Best you've ever had at the start. And then at some point in the last 20 short weeks, his libido completely collapsed. And then in the last 20 weeks, you got to the point where you're contemplating the strategies that stressed out new parents employ and people who've been married for 15 or 20 years and kind of lost the thread sexually employ, which is to schedule sex, to set a sex date, to throw yourselves in it or at it or at each other and see if you don't catch a group. Those are strategies that people employ under a kind of sexual duress and ennui. And typically people aren't there in 20 weeks or four months. So things are not fine for now. They're not fine. The first step is for you to admit what the tone of your voice is clearly communicating when you say things are fine, which is that things are not fine. And you are not feeling good about this relationship or good about this guy or confident that things can turn around. You never mention what he says about this, about why his libido has cratered. That must be a conversation that you have had with him. And you don't mention any external forces You don't mention that he's finishing his PhD. You don't mention that both of his parents died in a sudden car crash. You don't mention any new job stresses or anything else that sometimes can really crater someone's libido or him going on antidepressants. Maybe just 20 weeks into the relationship, maybe he went on antidepressants recently and doesn't feel comfortable disclosing that to you at the moment. If I was with somebody for just a few weeks and my doctor prescribed antidepressants to me, that might not be something I would disclose right away to somebody that I was just getting to know. There's something up with him and you don't seem to have any idea what that thing might be. And he indeed owes you an explanation and you can't get anywhere. You can throw yourself at him. You can throw a pot at him. You can throw a scheduled sex at him, but absent some explanation from him about what he might think is going on here, we don't know. We're flying blind 
trying to fix a problem when we don't know what that problem is and that is not fine for now or at all. So I would go to him if I were you, if I were in your shoes, my advice to you is to go to him and say, this is a problem. I'm seeking a a, a romantic and sexual partner. If you're not interested in me, uh, or the sex isn't there, or, or you don't feel as strongly about me as I feel about you, maybe we should part ways. Or if there's some other issue that is preventing us from being intimate, preventing you from being intimate, you either need to open up to me about what that is so I know how long a drought I'm in for and what the problem is, or we need to part ways for now and then circle back in six months or a year when This problem, if there is indeed a problem, has righted itself or if you've managed to solve it or you're ready to disclose it to me and share the problem with me, that then maybe we could work on together. But without any information, yeah, I'm not willing to stick with this indefinitely because it ain't fine. It ain't fine. Hi, Dan. Um, This is a 26-year-old Canadian girl. I have a really bit of a messed up situation. I started dating someone in 2015 and then he broke up with me because I wasn't nice. And then he came back like five hours later because that was dumb. And then he broke up with me a couple months after that because he thought he was gay. Um, Eight months later, after not talking to me, he came back and we started being friends and then he decided he wasn't gay and we got back together. I know I'm crazy, right? Well, everything's been great. Um, We've been working through whatever issues come up. So last week, I took some things and got some levels of high. And some of my insecurities about the relationship came out. And one of the big ones was his ex-girlfriend. And we worked through it and we talked about it. And I felt much better by the end of the day, um, the next day. But now he doesn't know why he's with me. And I don't know what to do. I feel like my insecure, like bringing out my insecurities at the time was kind of different because I had been on some drugs. And so I wasn't like all there, but he's sober, fully aware and telling me that he doesn't know if he wants to be with me. Side note, we were both Mormon. We don't go to church anymore. Um, So there's a lot of like weird religious stuff. It sounds really messy when I say it out loud, but I love this man. I don't know if it's fair for him to not know if he wants to be with me after everything that he's put me through. Um, I've been there for him the whole time. I've tried to be his friend, even when he didn't want me to be and just gave him space when he needed space Been on and off for over a year now. And maybe, maybe it's not worth it. Can you let me know if I'm being fair or not? You are being really unfair to yourself. You have to dump the motherfucker already. How many different ways does he have to communicate to you that what he's putting you through, this uh, this emotional roller coaster, this emotional grinder is not ancillary to the relationship. It's not a side note. It is the note note. It is what this relationship for him is about. It's about pushing you away. It's about punching you in the face symbolically, psychically, not literally, and then seeing if you're going to walk back, see if you're going to take him back. This is about his ego. This is about his, in my opinion, narcissism. It has nothing to do with being escapees from the Mormon religion or cult or whatever you want to call it. This is just common 
everyday relationship assholery where you were involved with some sort of psychologically sadistic narcissist who likes to punch you in the face and see if you will stay to be punched in the face again. And the only question for you is whether that's fair, not to him, to you, fair to yourself. Are you being fair to yourself by sticking the fuck around? It's only been a year. You don't really know someone well enough to say you love them with the intensity you seem to love this guy after a year together when you haven't been together that entire year. He's been there and gone and there and gone and gay and back. How much time have you actually spent with him? Stop pursuing this asshole. He is not the only man on the planet. There are four billion other dudes out there. Go throw yourself and your affection and your concern and your compassion and your commitment to making love work at someone who is capable of loving you back. And this asshole is not capable of loving you back. This asshole is just an asshole. And you have to stop sitting there thinking, oh, if I can just figure him out, if I can unpack the mystery of his damage, then I'll be able to pick all the locks on his heart and we will love. No, no, you will not be able to pick all the locks on his heart and he will be able to love you once you heal him. Because as we've said on the show a million times, your tits aren't magic. Your pussy ain't magic. You can't save him. He is who he is. He is who he has revealed himself to you to be, which is an asshole who does not care about you. An asshole who only cares about himself. Yes, part of what being in love is about, part of what a relationship, a committed relationship is about, is toughing through the hard times when they come. It's also about loving someone despite their flaws and their faults. Someone who is attempting to love you despite your flaws and your faults. But you can't love someone who either doesn't love you. I mean, you can, but it's kind of pathetic and eventually you have to walk away. And you can't love someone who's incapable of loving you and who's not there to love you, but is there to beat the shit out of you figuratively. This is an emotionally abusive relationship. You need to get the fuck out of it. Dump this messy, chaotic, damaged person and go find a messy, chaotic, damaged person because all of us are kind of messy, kind of chaotic, kind of damaged. But you got to find one who's functional, who despite their damage, despite their messiness, despite the chaos of human life and existence is capable of loving you on top of all of that. And this guy is not. So go. You're not a bad person if you leave someone who is incapable of loving you and only seems to be capable of abusing you and playing you and convincing you that the abuse isn't abuse, but some terrible tragedy that they themselves are suffering. And if you walk out on them now, you're the monster. No, leave the piece of shit. Dump the motherfucker already. Hey Dan, 33 year old straight guy from San Francisco. I just went through a really traumatic disease over the course of the last year and a half or so. And I'm trying to start dating again, but I'm not as interested in sex or in women as I used to be. Part of that is on dates. I haven't had that new relationship excited energy because I'm just so happy to be alive um, after going through this disease that I'm already at maximum happiness. It's hard to be more happy than maximum happy. And then another part of it is that when I was sick, I never knew what would happen on any particular day. I didn't know if I'd end up in a hospital or if I was in the hospital when I'd get to leave. Um, and so part of coping with the disease I just became very accepting of whatever happened. And I think this attitude is transferred over to dating in that um, instead of really seeking out, you know, women and trying to, you know, do my best and put on my best, you know, face and dress nicely, 
I'm more have to add to that, you know, I'm here doing my thing. And if they want to find me, they can come find me. And then to top this all off, right as I was about to hit my bottom health wise, my fiance and I broke up. So it's also been a while since I've been dating. So you say you're ready to get out there and start dating, but you're not so interested right now in a relationship or sex or women particularly. So it's not dating that you're interested in. It's getting out and living. It's perhaps companionship and company that you want, some human contact, some intimacy of the non-sexual and non-intensely romantic variety. Lead with that. Put that out there on your personal ads or if you contact people through online personals, don't hide that. Don't cover that up because you know what? There are probably lots of other people out there, men and women, and if it's not about sex, it's not about romance, it's not about relationships, you can seek companionship with anyone who've just come out of the other side of some challenging shit, uh, a health crisis as you are now on the other side of it. Congratulations. I'm glad you're well. Uh, a divorce, a major family tragedy, the election of Donald J. Trump, who might just want to get out of the house and hang out and, and make contact. And that's where you are right now. So lead with that. Because there are, I promise you, and I hear from them at Savage Love, the column and at the podcast, there are people out there who want to go on low stakes social dates, who want interactions, who want a reason to leave the house and someone to hang out with and be with, who has really low expectations of them romantically or sexually. So this thing that you think disqualifies you from dating is actually a quality that will attract some people to you who would like to date just that kind of guy. So my advice is to put that out there, lead with that, find other people in your shoes who want what you want right now in the limited way that you want it right now and date them. And Again, congratulations on coming through on the other side of your health crisis. We're all glad you're well. Hi, Dan. Um, I am wondering if it is ever okay to out someone. Um, the person that I'm wondering about is my daughter. She's 13, and she recently came out to me as gay. And this is totally fine. I love her, accept her. She knows this. Um, but what I'm worried about is my mom. We don't live in the same state as her, and she usually comes for a visit over the summer. And she is also one of those people who believes that being gay is wrong, but you know you have to love the sinner and hate the sin, which is an idea that I find really offensive. Um, and my daughter knows us about her grandmother and has expressed some anxiety about this visit and is a little apprehensive. Um, she definitely doesn't want to hide anything. Um, and she doesn't have a girlfriend. I mean, she's only 13. She's just a kid. But this is something that's really prominent in her mind and something that she's coming to terms with. And she is very open about and it's not something that she would want to hide. Um, and I think she's worried that if the subject of, you know, hey, do you have any boys at school that you like? Um, if my mom asks that question, that she's, you know, she's going to be honest when she answers. So I'm, I'm wondering, is it okay to talk to my mom first and tell her that her granddaughter is gay and warn her, like, set some limits, like, look, like, you're entitled to believe whatever you want to believe. And I find it offensive. But if that's what you want to believe, fine. But if you want to have a relationship with your granddaughter and you don't want to hurt her feelings, then you need to accept her and keep those opinions to yourself. I kind of feel like if I do this, on the one hand, it's really not my place 
to talk about my daughter's sexual orientation with other people. Like that should be her news to share. But also, I don't want her to um, to be caused pain. And I also like don't want my mom to be taken by surprise either. And I think she would be. And I think she might have a, an inappropriate reaction that would maybe further injure my daughter. Um, so I'm wondering, is it okay to have that discussion with my mom? And um, I don't know that my daughter would want me to do that. So it would probably be something that I would do without her permission. I don't know. What do you think? It is okay to have that conversation, that discussion with your mother in the abstract. You should not out your 13-year-old daughter to her grandmother. At 13, at your daughter's age, it has to be up to her who she wants to be out with. And you're going to have to, as my mother put it, step into the closet a little bit with your daughter. You're going to have to be the semi-partly closeted mother of a, a, a gay teenager because you don't want to rush her out or hustle her out or force her or compel her or out her to members of the family that she is not ready to come out to yet. That said, your mother, if she, if you have siblings, if there are other grandchildren, granddaughters, grandsons, you could have a conversation with your mother right now about what she believes about LGBT kids and LGBT adults. And you can tell her, you know, statistically, mom, odds are good that you have a gay grandchild. And you don't have to say, and she's my daughter. You can just keep it in the abstract. And if she says, what are you telling your daughter? Say, no, no, mom. But odds are you have a gay grandchild, a queer one, maybe a trans one, maybe a bi one. But odds are good because a lot of people are queer that one of your grandkids is queer. And you saying these hurtful things about queer people is going to, in the long run, destroy your relationship with your grandchild who is queer if indeed you have a queer one. And it's bad for other kids who might be queer to overhear. And it's shitty and you shouldn't be saying it. And you should have said this shit to your mother years ago. You should have said this shit to your mother when your daughter was two. Not wait till your daughter is 13 to confront your mother. 13 and out to you to confront your mother about the shitty things that she believes and sounds like routinely says about queer people. And you don't have to end with, if that's what you want to believe, that's fine. Because you know what? It is not fine. And you have to stand up to her. It is not fine. And fuck you, mom. It is not fine. And we're not going to agree to disagree about this. You're going to come the fuck around. This is how families work on this issue. Strong people in families stand up to shitty, hateful people in families and communicate to them that there is a new norm in this family around love and acceptance. And they have got to get with the program. When I came out to my mother, sometimes I worry you all get sick of these stories about when I came out to my mother. But when I came out to my mother and was ready to come out to the whole family... My mother let everybody know that if anybody had a problem with me, they had a much bigger problem with her. And that was the depth charge. That was a bomb she dropped because everybody wanted to be in good with my mother because my mom was Christmas house and my mom was the matriarch and my mom was the oldest daughter and my mom was the beloved aunt and ultimately the grandmother. But at that time, not a grandmother, matriarch, eldest daughter, aunt. And she threw down and that brought a lot of my relatives around who weren't necessarily comfortable with me, but they didn't want to be uncomfortable with my mother. And that's what you have to do with yours. You have to make sure that your daughter isn't uncomfortable with you or around anyone else in the family, but that anyone who's going to make your daughter feel uncomfortable is going to be very uncomfortable with the grief that you're going to give them. So mom, get out in front of it. The conversation with your mother now in the abstract, don't out your 
daughter. And when the time comes that your daughter is ready to come out to the extended family, be a mama lion. Hi, Dan. I'm Tech at Rescue, 25-year-old pansist woman from Colorado. A few months ago, I met this guy, an incredible kinky poly queer artist who I had an amazing physical and spiritual chemistry with. I fell for him quickly and hadn't felt such a strong connection with anyone in years. The first time we had sex after I came out to him as a sub was perfect. <laughs> he talked to me well with check-ins to make me comfortable and trusting. The sex and relationship continued that way for months. However, last week, he left Colorado to go volunteer on the country for six months. He stayed with me for his last night here, and he did something that, in my mind, is pretty messed up. He was fucking me from behind, dominating me into bliss, when he, without warning or asking or lube, rammed his dick into my ass. I immediately shut down sex, not only because my consent had not been given for that, but because butt-fucking isn't something I do. After I came back from the bathroom, he was incredibly apologetic, and he looked devastated. The only thing he gave in the way of an explanation is he said, the message I get from you both in words and your reactions during sex is that you want me to just take my pleasure and do what I want, and that gets you off. While largely that is true, I still feel like it should be in the protective bubble of prior consent or communication. And to me, fucking my ass is not like spanking me or something. It's a lot bigger and requires a conversation first, which we had never had. Because this happened in literally the last hour of our time together, I made the conscious decision to move past it. Not for him, but so that the romance of the last few months would not feel destroyed for me by what had just happened. Had it not been his last hour here, there would have been a lot more conversation. So he's gone now, and my questions are, was his reasoning, however flawed, just a misunderstanding of what consent and kinky sex is required, the mistake of an inexperienced player, or is this an indicator of something bigger that I can't or shouldn't get past? Is going from vaginal to anal the way he did as big of a deal for other subs, or am I in the minority? And is there a lesson in here for me about better communicating my limits and desires? Do I need to explicitly say beforehand to a partner, hey, I don't do this, or was I right to assume that any decent partner would ask before sticking it in my path? This act was so wildly incongruent with everything else I know about him. In my heart, I just can't imagine any sort of malice on his part. I miss him a lot and want to be his friend and potentially his future lover again, but I'm not sure how or if I should get past this. Please help, Dan. It's possible that all the checking in he did early on when you guys were establishing your rapport sexually and you were growing more comfortable being submissive to him sexually and all that establishing of trust. It's possible that all of that was a con that he was just getting you into a position where he could violate your trust, where he could rape your ass in that moment. And it was all just a build up to that unforgivable, in my opinion, violation. You don't just jam a dick into someone's ass lubeless and I'm sorry, but vaginal secretions on your dick uh, from vaginal intercourse does not count as a lubricant in a situation like that or a circumstance like that. You need anal foreplay. You need a lot of lubricant. You can't just shove a dick into someone's ass. You could potentially really, really hurt someone doing that. You could give someone a, a rip or a tear, an anal fissure that never heals. They could be in pain for the rest of their life. Physical pain, but also even if you didn't manage to damage them physically, you could damage them psychologically. And that could be a psychological pain that they have to live with for the rest of their lives. It is not okay. What he did is not okay. And he either did it on purpose or he did it because he's a fucking idiot. And one of the tech savvy at risk youth, we all sit around and we listen. We all sit around on the floor 
with our legs folded in front of us and we join hands and we listen to all the calls together before we do the show. And one of the tech heavy at rescues felt strongly that this may have not been an intentional violation, that this may have been porn. This may have been an expectation that he brought to sex based on years of watching porn where dicks get shoved up asses suddenly and frequently with no prep, no apparent application of lube and no discussion around consent or limits. That explanation, though, would require us to believe that this guy, this kinky artist man that you fell for, is inexperienced and stupid and knew enough to negotiate around other forms of BDSM play that you two engaged in with each other, but not enough to negotiate around anal, which I find hard to believe. I think it is far likelier that this was a long con, that his thing or what he wanted to do, ultimately that he wanted to violate you in that moment, that he wanted to penetrate you without your consent and without much prep. And if it pained you, that was part of the pleasure he was taking in it. I wouldn't let him get behind me with his dick ever again. If he had done that to me, I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel safe, particularly in a BDSM relationship or a dom sub relationship where you want to, as you said, and I think that was very articulate within this bubble of, of consent and negotiation, you can play that things are ruled in. It's not that you can do anything that hasn't been ruled out. That's not BDSM. That's potentially abuse. And maybe there are some people out there who do BDSM who play that way, where it's not about what you ruled in, but what you didn't rule out. And hopefully, and perhaps in some circumstances, people who play that way have a good experience because through luck and chance, nothing was rolled out that wasn't what the other person would have wanted or welcomed or enjoyed. But it's a dangerous way to play. Your way is the way people who are into kink and dom-sub dynamics ought to play. You negotiate in advance about what's on the menu, what isn't on the menu. And within that bubble, with that menu in that bubble, to strain metaphors and mix them, you play. And the dom gets free reign while also checking in and while using a safe word. Free reign to direct and control and drive the scene. Frankly, I don't think you should see this guy again, even if it was porn, even if it was an accident, even if he didn't intentionally violate you, even if he didn't intentionally put you at risk of physical and psychological harm, there has to be a consequence for him in this. There has to be a price that he pays. And I think losing access to you, your body, your ass, the, the sex that you two had together, all of that, I think that is a price that he has to pay to learn. And I think you should communicate to that him. And I think you should communicate that to him. What happened was not okay. I no longer feel safe submitting to you as a consequence of it. What happened was not okay. And I no longer feel safe playing with you in the sub role because of it. So maybe we can be friends if I hear something from you that convinces me that that was an accident, but we're not lovers anymore and we can't be lovers ever again. Hey, Dan, I'm Stephanie calling from Australia. And I had a question mostly about seeing if other people have had a similar experience as me, basically of, of uh, feeling coerced into sex by being given an orgasm. Um, I recently had an experience where I made it really clear to someone that I was not interested in moving any further. Um, and after a few times of saying no, 
I relented and allowed him to give me a really great orgasm. And then after the, after the fact, I've now realized that I felt obligated to do the same for him. And I did. I didn't want to in the first place, but I felt like it would have been wrong if, I, if I'd gotten away with an orgasm and he didn't. So anyway, just wondering if anybody else has had similar experiences, if this is a thing or maybe even a tactic. There are anti-rape and anti-rape culture activists out there whose work and mission I completely support who argue that if you have to beg and plead, if you ask and ask and the initial answer is no and you eventually get a yes by persisting, by continuing to ask, that that is not valid. That is not consent. That is rape. That is coercive. And I disagree to some extent with that analysis because there's a difference between pathetic begging and pleading that results in someone pity fucking you and coercive threatening begging and pleading that results in someone consenting to sex they don't want to have because they fear you. Pity fuck, fear fuck, two different things. You don't say in your call, I'm sorry, we weren't able to call you back, whether this was a pity fuck consent or a fear fuck consent. Sounds though like it was a pity fuck consent. And therefore, in my estimation, Although, you know, he persisted and he asked again and again, and he should have taken no for an answer in the first place. It wasn't rape. You weren't raped. You had sex with this dude. You allowed him to get you off. And then the question becomes, are you obligated after someone gets you off to get them off? And the answer to that is, yeah, kind of. If somebody gets you off, you should return the favor. You don't have to return the favor. You can say, I'd rather not, but that's kind of a dick move as was the persistent begging and pleading pity fuck request on his part that eventually got you to consent. Also a dick move. So you could have dick moved right back at him. He employed a dick move strategy that got you to consent to allow him to get you off. And you could have retaliated with a dick move strategy where you said, that's it. You can masturbate about that later. You can masturbate about the orgasm you just watched me have later, but I ain't getting you off. Dick move to dick move. But when it comes to sort of the commodification of sexual pleasure and you scratch my back, I scratch your back, you jack my dick, I play with your clit. It says right there in Emily Post and written in lemon juice on the back pages, you have to hold it over candle to see it. If somebody gets you off, the social compact, sexual compact says you should return the favor. You should get them off too. But you don't have to and it sounds like you didn't want to. But you allowed him to get you off and then he had a reasonable expectation that you would get him off in return. It was unreasonable of him to beg and plead and get you to pity fuck him. So you could have said no, but that's not the question you asked. You asked, am I obligated when somebody gets me off to return the favor and get them off? Yeah, kind of, but there are outs. And next time you know, to employ that out. And there's a lot of gray here and a lot of subjectivity at play here because some dude may think that he's begging and pleading in a pity fuck way and he's in no way being coercive or threatening but that may not be how the woman that he is begging and pleading for the pity fuck is experiencing it. Maybe she's been sexually assaulted in the past. Maybe he doesn't understand how he comes across. Maybe he's much more physically imposing than she is. And men are volatile testosterone-soaked dick monsters. She may worry that he's about to go nuclear. It's going to go from pathetic pity fuck request to coercive threatening non-request. And then consent is going to be nuked or not on the table anymore. So this exists on a continuum. There's a lot of gray and a lot of nuance. That said, there is a distinction I think that can be made between you fucked somebody out of pity 
and you fucked somebody out of fear. Hi, Dan. I'm in their 40s straight this woman in a 20-year monogamous marriage calling from New York. And I have a question about my gynecologist. For us, monogamish means that my husband gets passed to see a sex worker when he's out of town. So about six weeks ago, he was out of town taking care of getting his mom into a nursing home. And he called a sex worker to kind of blow off some steam from all the frustration of that. He was going down on her and she unexpectedly got her period. So there was a little bit of concern about STI. It's not big concern, but we wanted to get testing. So last week, I had an appointment with a new gynecologist, and she's at a satellite clinic of one of the major medical centers here in New York. And the physical exam she did was fine, but after establishing that I was married, she didn't ask any questions about sex or, or our relationship. And at the end of the appointment, when she ordered blood work, I asked if she was including STI screening. And what bothered me is she responded, well, no, you're married. I pursued it, and she, she did order this screening at my request, so I'm fine, I'm safe, it's all good. But later, I was really bothered by the public health aspect of her assumptions. I'm pretty good at advocating for and getting what I need, but I know that's not true for everybody. And I'm bothered by her assumption that marriage equals monogamy and that all her married patients and all of their partners do monogamy perfectly, since, as you often point out, most people don't. I didn't say anything to her other than asking for the test and and making sure I got it. But now I'm feeling like I should have spoken up. Is there something I could have said or done to make it easier for the next married woman who wants testing and, you know, who is in a non-monogamous relationship or who whose partner might have cheated or whatever? Because um, I'd like to help be that change. So we caught you walking down the street uh, in a big city. So if other people are listening, wondering what the noise is about, that's it. Uh, but I had a follow-up question for you. Uh, why didn't you tell your doctor you're in a non-monogamous relationship? Why didn't you just tell your doctor? It would make her more sensitive to the existence of couples in non-monogamous relationships if she knew you were one of them and one of her patients was one of them. You know, I'm not, I'm not sure. I guess I just kind of kind of choked on that. I mean, it's not something that we are socially monogamous. So it's uh, not, a, not a thing I'm accustomed to talking about if, if people don't ask. And I guess it was just her reaction. She was like, "What well, you're married. You know, like, this was the answer to everything. And that is a crazy reaction on her part. There's a study from the Journal of Sexual Medicine from a few years ago called A Comparison of Sexual Health History and Practices Among Monogamous and Consensually Non-Monogamous Sexual Partners. And it found that people in monogamous relationships were at as high a risk for sexually transmitted infection as people in non-monogamous relationships were, in honest, ethical non-monogamous relationships were. So monogamy doesn't protect people from sexually transmitted infections. Women who have husbands who are supposed to be monogamous are as likely to get a sexually transmitted infection as women who are in non-monogamous relationships. And your doctor needs to know that. And you could print that study out and give it to her. Uh-huh. But the most powerful thing you could do is come out to her. She's your healthcare provider. This is something, right. you know, this 
you know, arrangement, this choice you and your husband have made, your relationship model, it doesn't put you at higher risk than monogamous couples, but it is a health concern. And you should not be right. shy about sharing that with your doctor. And hopefully that will help her not be such a fucking idiot about this kind of crap. Okay. Well, the next time I see her, I'll try and like address that more, more clearly. I guess I was so surprised by her reaction, you know, because I expect somebody who works in women's health to, to not be, be aware of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we all expect people, yeah. uh, particularly people who can get their asses through med school, not to be idiots, but the sex negativity in our culture and in our med schools is so pervasive that even our doctors don't want to see us necessarily as sexual actors. And it's more comfortable for some to tiptoe around or ignore sexual risk than to address it head on. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of people out there like you and your husband who are socially monogamous, but not sexually monogamous. And I support that choice. I, I think that's valid when it comes to neighbors and friends and coworkers and siblings and parents and children, but not when it comes to healthcare providers. That's a fact about your health and your risks that your healthcare provider, that your doctor needs to be aware of. Okay. Yeah. And for us, it, I mean, it is true at like the 99% level. And this is like maybe once a year, if that, you mm -hmm. know, so it, it's just something I don't really care. Right. If she needs, she's away, needs to blow off steam, whatever. Um, so it's like, it wouldn't even really be, accurate for us to say we have an open relationship in the usual sense. You, uh, you, know? you are who I coined the term monogamish for. You guys right, are that's exactly right. Mostly monogamous marriage. There's a little squish there around the end, monogamish. Your husband also exactly. has the ability to use latex and not just for fucking, not just a condom on his dick, but dental dams that are a thing and right. could have avoided this, this issue uh, of the sudden period sudden onset period problem with the sex worker if he'd been using a dental dam. And I say that knowing that there's not a human being on the planet who's ever used a dental dam at once. Sorry, here comes the train. Okay. Well, we'll let you go. Thank you so much for jumping on the phone. I appreciate your input. You're welcome. And uh, if you don't want to come out to your doctor as non-monogamous, you can print this study out and bring it to your doctor. But what that then uh -huh. says is that you think your husband is cheating on you without your consent. I mean, he's a good guy, Right. We've been married almost 20 years, and I don't want to really throw him under the bus for no good reason, even with somebody he doesn't have to interact with. Yeah, I don't think you should throw him under the bus. I think you should come out to your doctor. I think that would be much more impactful. And hopefully then, when she sees someone in the office, that she will have that in her head as a possibility. That socially monogamous, sexually non-monogamous to whatever limited or expansive extent uh -huh. is a thing that couples do, even couples who appear to be monogamous in every other respect. Okay, thanks a lot. Sure thing, good luck. Hi, it's a 26-year-old gay male from Australia here. Uh, listening to your advice over the past six years, <clears throat> I've gone from a hard-up teenager to a proud and conscientious kinkster. That was until about two weeks ago when I was sexually assaulted during a play date. It was with a guy that I'd met uh, once before and we've spoken for about a month previously. We were into the same things, uh, BDSM and kink-wise, and I felt like I had a really good connection with him. Uh, towards, I guess, the end of the play date this time, though, he told me that he had removed the condom um, as he was fucking me. 
and that he had just come in my butt. I didn't believe him, um, but with him still on top of me, he reached around and showed me the condom, which he had taken off. I started to freak out, and at this point, he told me that he was HIV positive and that he wanted to infect me. Some of the things that he said were really, really disturbing. Um, you know, we'd, we'd spoken about HIV status previously, but before the hookup, and we'd both said that we were negative and that we wanted to use condoms. So that was an agreed sort of limit. I guess fasting forward to, to, to what happened, I threw him off me at this point, and he sort of held on to me and called out my name and told me to calm down. I proceeded to say, what the fuck are you doing? And then he proceeded to tell me that everything that he had told me about him was a lie, but then that the name that he used was different, that his background, where he'd lived, his job, all of that was a lie. It sort of just completely rocked my world, and I didn't know what to believe in that instant. I felt really unsafe in my house with him after all of this. Uh, eventually, he left, and I called my best mate straight away, and we went to the hospital, and I got PEP, and I did a rape kit, and I didn't go to the police initially because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. After all of this, he was messaging me saying how sorry he was for doing it, and he sent me a copy of his driver's license uh, to prove who he really was now, um, and also a copy of his latest HIV antibody test, which was a week prior to when we hooked up. So I'm less uh, stressed about my immediate physical danger at the moment, but I'm still really confused about the whole thing, Dan. I guess I don't really know what to do. Um, I have gone to the police post all of this happening, but it was extremely stressful and they told me it would take over a year to get to court and that the outcome is uncertain. And I don't even know if this guy did it on purpose or if it was just he got carried away in the moment. I mean, it was totally wrong for him to take the condom off, but the things that he said about infecting me with HIV and having his pose sperm deep inside me make me think that he was playing out some sort of fantasy for him and I'm sort of shaming him or something crazy by going to the police and police and taking it further. I don't know. I guess the other thing is, how do I get back to being the sort of proud and out kinkster that I was before? How do I feel sexy again about about all of this? Because I'm so conflicted because we, it was such a good play date before this happened. But it just made me feel so gross and completely awful. We talked about stealthing at the top of last week's show, where people remove condoms during intercourse without the consent of the person that they're inside of at that moment, and that is sexual assault. And there has been at least one successful prosecution in the world of someone who engaged in this behavior, of a stealther. I would encourage you to go to the police, even if it takes a year, even if the outcome isn't assured. I would encourage you to push through the callous indifference of the authorities that you've been in contact with and insist that this guy be prosecuted, insist that this guy be arrested and charged for what he did to you. 
sounds like you're trying to wrap your head around why he did this. So that's my first and and most important point. Go to the police, press fucking charges. Why he did it. I don't think that you have to take steps to avoid kink shaming this guy. If indeed this is his kink, you know what? It sounds like it is his kink. Some people have kinks around HIV. Some people have eroticized the fear and terror of getting infected or infecting someone. Bug chasers and gift givers, they were calling him 10, 15 years ago. And there's a bunch of articles written about them in Rolling Stone and other places. And I don't want to revive this idiocy by even saying those words out loud. But there it is. There are some people out there who are turned on by this thought. And perhaps this is his kink. Perhaps this is his fetish. Maybe he's one of those people into BDSM who's into fear and terror scenes where they're with someone who, if it's not sexual assault, it's negotiated fear and terror scenes that they can make believe that they are imperiling them in some way and induce fear and terror. Not my thing, not anything I would ever want to do to someone or have done to me, but something that some people out there are into. Perhaps those are his kinks. Perhaps some combo platter of the both of them, of bug chasing, gift giving, and fear and terror scenes. Does not make it okay. Does not make it not sexual assault for him to spring those things on you without your consent, without prior negotiation without talking about it. So even if those are his kinks, he should be ashamed. And you do not have to take steps to avoid kink shaming him for having those kinks because you're not shaming him for those kinks. You're shaming him for assaulting you, for sexually assaulting you, for the way in which he, if these are his kinks, the way in which he rolled them out, which was non-consensually, which is not okay and something he should be ashamed of. That's what you're shaming him for. Not for his fucking kinks, if these are his fucking kinks, but for sexually assaulting you by busting these kinks out on you non-consensually. If these are his things, he needs to negotiate them with partners who would like to experience eroticized HIV infection play or fear and terror scenes. And there are people out there, there are pots for that lid. There are people out there who might be into this. They are very few and far between and hard to find which may be why he just decided to go for it with you, which does not make it okay. As for how you get back to being a proud and out kinkster, you don't let one bad experience derail you. You've got your mates, your friends who've been there for you, at least one through this crisis, lean on them, take a break. The next time you want to play with someone in a BDSM context, Do a little extra vetting. I'm not saying that you didn't do enough vetting with this guy. It sounds like you had been in contact with him for a while and sussed him out and you had a good feeling about him and you took this leap and that's what people do every day. So I'm not saying that you did anything wrong here, but for your own sense of safety and security going forward from this experience, for your own peace of mind, I think you're going to want to do more above and beyond extra credit vetting before you make yourself vulnerable to somebody again, to some other man in a BDSM context. So you might want to see that driver's license before you play. You're going to, and you can say to someone, I had a really bad experience and someone lied to me about who they were and what their name was and everything else. So I require names and I want to see your driver's license and here's mine. You can demonstrate that you're not asking them for anything. You're not willing to give to them and then find a good and decent guy who's into safe, sane, and consensual BDSM play, who respects your limits and your boundaries, with whom you can have some good and positive experience to put some 
chronological but also emotional experiential distance between this terrible, negative, traumatizing, scary experience and where you are now and the, 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 the sex and the play and the pleasure and the joy that you can have with good and decent guys going forward. And you know they're out there. You've had good and decent and joyful sexual experiences in the past with other guys. Maybe you want to circle back to one of those guys that you've already been with, that you feel safe with exploring these, your kinks and reach out to them and be vulnerable. Ask them, say you had this terrible experience and you need to revisit the good times and what was good about these experiences and it was good with them and how about another go? Not just for the fun and the sex, but also for the way that would help you out. And a good and decent guy will probably want to go there with you. But there are good and decent guys out there who are into your kinks, who you haven't messed around with yet, that you can find and I think you should find because it will help you in time. Take a nice long break. When you're ready, it will help you get past this because it will dilute this bad experience. More good experiences in this arena will make this bad experience in this arena seem less consequential, loom less large emotionally. I'm so sorry this happened to you. I know you can get through it and get past it. And my heart goes out to you. And fuck that guy and go back to the police. Hi, Dan. As an at-risk youth who's not at all tech-savvy, I just recently started listening to your podcast, and I'm not sure whether you've covered this topic before. Um, my wife says she wants to be able to give me blowjobs, but she has TMJ disorder and can only go for about two minutes before her jaw starts to get very painful. At this point, she'll stop, I'll massage her jaw, and we'll move on to something else. A quick Google search on this topic gave me the unhelpful answer that I should just stop being an asshole who pressures my wife into giving me oral sex. While I think it would be nice to get a blowjob for longer than two minutes, it's really not a big issue for me, and I've tried to make it clear to my wife that she shouldn't let it bother her. Uh, she says she wants to get better at it, though. So my question for a sexpert such as yourself is, can the situation be improved with practice, like by increasing the duration a little bit each time? Or could it have the opposite effect of making her TMJ worse to a point where it hurts to do things like eating? Receiving oral sex isn't important enough to me to risk hurting my wife, obviously. But at the same time, I don't want her to feel bad for being unable to satisfy me with a common form of sex. Any tips you can have for us would be great. Joining me by phone, Dr. Michael Plout, a psychologist, sex therapist, and sex educator who has written on TMJ. Hey, Dr. Plout, how are you? Oh, just fine, thank you. Thanks for jumping on the phone. Before we get to the particulars of this problem, what is TMJ? What does TMJ stand for? What does it do? A temporal mandibular disorder. And what's that like to have? Well, it, it's, it can be very painful. It makes it difficult for... A person uh, often to open their jaws, um, sometimes they pop or, or um, uh, very painful uh, with, with even talking mm -hmm. or eating, uh, let alone a sexual activity. So it does become an, an issue uh, in sexual relationships. Is it something that people have or that they develop? Is it injury related? Is it genetic? Um, I don't know if there's a genetic component. Uh, not being a physician, I, I don't want to speak about it uh, in a medical sense too much, but mm -hmm. it's it's normally something that people acquire in adulthood, and uh, it can last for quite a long time. Do women get it more often than men? Is it more common among women? My understanding is that it is more common in women. Okay, so are there treatments? Is there a cure? Uh, there is. I, I, 
I've talked to uh, people who have had it when they were younger, and then they got over it. So it is something that can that people can overcome through physical um, therapy, drugs. What is it that people typically throw? Well, again, at? it just, just depends on the situation, and I, the treatment has to be specific to the the condition of the individual person. So it's something that a person with the condition should take up with their physician. Yeah, sometimes dentists uh, are specialists in treating this as well. So. This guy doesn't sound like an asshole to me. He would like a blowjob that lasts longer than two minutes and one that doesn't physically traumatize his wife. And it sounds like she would like to get there too. Mm-hmm. First step, obviously, is go see a doctor and talk about it. But could their sort of at-home attempts to tough out the blowjob make the condition worse? Uh, it could if it puts too much stress on the jaw. Absolutely. So limit that oral foreplay to one minute, not two minutes. Well, I wouldn't put a number on it, and I wouldn't make a specific suggestion for anybody without knowing more about their medical condition and their history, um, and also uh, whether there are other medical conditions that they're dealing with. Mm-hmm. A person could be clinically depressed, or they could be on medications for other reasons. So um, I think well, the, the general approach to this is more important than making a specific suggestion for a person or a couple. But they are putting the... I guess the blowjob cart before the blowjob horse if they aren't going to talk with a doctor about this first and seek treatment first before you work on the blowjobs. That's certainly cer- certainly talking to whichever type of medical professional is treating this woman. Now, I will say that there are a lot of medical professionals who are not comfortable talking about sexuality. Mm-hmm. So um, hopefully they can find someone who is. Uh, and that's sometimes an advantage of working with a qualified sex therapist because a sex therapist will typically know medical professionals in the area who are comfortable working with these issues, and he or she can also guide them through a process so that if the couple was to do what you're suggesting, and that is try it on a limited basis and gradually accelerate, so it's a process that we call in psychology successive approximation, um, then they would go in every week and discuss this with the therapist and see how they're responding. Mm-hmm. And then and then that person can help them address any issues that are coming up in, in the process. Are they communicating well? Are they, are they respecting each other's limitations? Uh, are they being too insistent? Those kinds of things. So we can let the sex therapist adjudicate whether or not this guy is actually being an asshole and if his wife wants to go there and wants to get there. And a sex therapist, a good one, will know the docs in your area who will take uh, – a sex-related medical problem, seriously, and a lot of docs won't. If you go to a doc with something where, you know, a medical condition that is uh, inflamed by or impacts your sex life or sex play, the doc often, mm-hmm. a lot of sex-negative docs will look at you and say, well, you don't have to have the sex. Well, this is an important point. I think that um, all of us, without exception, are going to reach points in our life at some point where we are, are limited by illness, by aging, by medication, by injury, and sexuality is not going to be the same as it always was. So we are going to have to make some kinds of adjustments in our sexual life. We sometimes have to reinvent ourselves completely. So this is just one example. So I think the key thing for, for this couple or any couple is not making any aspect of sexual activity a, a should or a must or an expectation. Mm -hmm. There are other ways to enjoy each other in an intimate way, and they need to work with each other and find out what those are so they can be happy. And what are the titles of your articles and where can people find them? Well, the article on this this particular topic is called 
uh, temporal mandibular disorders and sexual intimacy, and it was on a, a website. But it's at tmj.org. And if I believe if they search for your name, Dr. Michael Plout, the article pops right up. Uh, in that article, I reference other publications which deal with chronic illness of more general types because the, the issues are going to be pretty much the same for people with any kind of um, uh, physical situation. So our advice, in a nutshell, get online, read these articles uh, by Dr. Michael Plout, get a sex therapist that you can work with who can help you find a sex-positive doc uh, or physician that can work with you, and then maybe you can uh, work on those blowjobs, but you should do it in that order. Dr. Michael Plout, psychologist, sex therapist, sex educator, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. We really appreciate it. Okay. Thank you for asking me. Thank you. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at Risk Youth. Um, I'm a 25-year-old bisexual woman calling from Chicago, and I have a conundrum concerning my best friend. She's also 25 and straight. We are both in the process of, you know, dealing with online dating, and so quite often our conversations revolve around horror stories and sometimes good stories and um, obviously a discussion of what we do and do not find attractive about some of our matches. And during the course of one of these conversations, it came up that she is not attracted to bisexual men and would not consider dating them. I found this quite surprising, honestly, because I'm not the only queer person in her life. And she's a very, you know, educated and liberally minded person. So I was curious as to why she felt that way. And in her words, liking Dick is just does not fit into the model of masculinity that she's attracted to. Um, and I just find that I found it really problematic um, because if she has a problem with effeminate men, that doesn't necessarily go with liking dick. And I, I don't know. I just, I was really kind of shocked that she said this. And, um, you know, in her words, she says, I know it makes me a horrible person, but that's just how I feel. And while I understand that we can't help who we're attracted to and no one owes anyone anything on that level, um, I just found the whole thing kind of mystifying, and I'm of the opinion that if our, you know, feelings are inspired by, you know, misinformation or stereotypes, it's kind of our duty to, like, delve into that and figure that out instead of just brushing it aside and saying, well, I can't help it. But I don't know, Dan, maybe you can help me out here. Am I being unreasonable? Are my feelings hurt for no reason? I just keep thinking that this argument has been used against me, you know, women won't date me because I like Dick. And I've seen, you know, I just, I feel like this whole idea kind of contributes to biphobia and my erasure. And it's just surprising to me that my very best friend in the world is, you know, feeling this way. So what's my obligation here? Should I be having a conversation with her about gender politics? Should I be you know, expressing this, you know, kind of mystifying feeling I'm having, or am I being completely unreasonable and I should just let my itty-bitty feelings go and deal with it? The conversation you need to have with your friend really can just be two words, two words long, the entire conversation, not even a conversation. The statement that you make to your friend, it can just be this, your loss. Bye guys are super hot and you don't want to fuck bye guys for reasons. All right, your loss Let's go to the movies. What do you want for dinner? Which bottle of wine should we get? Your loss. People don't have to be attracted to people that they're not attracted to because we're attracted to them or we think that their lack of attraction is problematic. I think we should challenge people to be thoughtful about why they're attracted to the people that they're attracted to because some of those attractions are really shaped by the 
culture. Sometimes we want not what we want, but what we've been instructed to want. And maybe on some level, your friend wants a guy who would never touch another guy, not because that's what she wants, but because that's what the culture instructed her to want. Or maybe that's what she wants at bottom. And maybe that's okay. And I get it. I get how women saying they would never date a bi guy leads bi guys in many cases not to come out to women, to straight women for fear of those women not dating them. I don't totally understand that because I wouldn't want myself to have to be closeted to the person I might wind up spending the rest of my life with. I would rather be out and continue searching until I find the person, male or female, who wants to be with me rather than settle for someone who wouldn't want to be with me if they knew who I was. I didn't want to have that kind of relationship with my family. I couldn't imagine having that kind of relationship with my lover, sex partner, romantic partner, spouse for 50 fucking years. How emotionally exhausting would that be? All that said, you know, on some level, the people we're attracted to can also be symbolic, can also be archetypes. And maybe your friend is attracted to a kind of masculinity that precludes same-sex desire because maybe she sees a guy sucking another guy's dick or being intimate or being fucked by another guy or fucking another guy as symbolically emasculated. And for her juices to get flowing, she needs to be with the masculine guy who could never be emasculated by anyone, just hyper-masculine, Superman masculine dude. And if she's with a dude who isn't that kind of masculine or is in any way emasculated by his desires in her assessment, then she can't tap into that. And of course, what you and I can sit here, you call her and me and say, oh, that's problematic for all these reasons. That said, I have probably in my email inbox right now, at least two or three letters over the last couple of weeks from women who are attracted to bi guys because it's emasculating, that they are aroused by the emasculating aspect of one dude sucking another dude's dick, that they want to be with a bi guy. They think bi guys are hot and gay sex is hot because the guys in that moment may be taking on a more feminine and less powerful world and they find that sexy. And I don't think if that woman was your friend, if she rolled that out to you, that you necessarily would have objected to that in the moment. That, oh, that's the wrong reason to be attracted to a bi guy. I don't think you would have said that. You would have said, huh, that's kind of hot or that's an interesting take on it. And it's a really common one. It is a thread that has run through a lot of the letters I've received over the years from women who are open to dating bi guys for reasons, for this reason. And it's kind of the flip side of the same reason your friend is not open to dating bi guys. Also, too, think of gay guys out there who are online, who are looking for bi guys or looking for straight identified guys who will let gay guys blow them. And if you talk to those gay guys, as I have, sometimes at great length, what they will tell you is that there's something about being with a guy who fucks women that just is hotter because the guy is more masculine. And this is a gay guy saying this, that part of what turns him on about being with a straight identified guy or being with a guy who's bi, who has a girlfriend or wife at home, hopefully who knows and is okay with it, is hot because that guy is more masculine than the average gay guy. That's kind of fucked up, right? As a gay guy who's 100% gay and doesn't feel that unmasculine for that reason, it's kind of fucked up to say dudes who sleep with women are, are by definition more masculine and essentially to their core is more masculine than guys who sleep with guys. But there it is. That's what's working in their erotic imagination. And not many people waste a lot of time scolding those guys 
about their internalized homophobia or the homophobia they're fomenting or whatever. They're like, oh, yeah, there's some gay guys who like to suck off straight guys because there's something about how masculine straight guys seem to them that just cranks them up and God bless them, whatever. I would challenge your friend in the same way that I have challenged my gay friends, gay white male friends who say they would never date someone who was not white because that is totally culturally shaped. And I will confess that when I was 18 and just coming out, I felt the same way. And it really took time and life experience for me. And by life experience, I mean sleeping around for me to realize that I was attracted to more types of guys than at 18. I was aware that I was attracted to because of what was scripted for me by the culture. So you can have these ongoing conversations with your friend and you can, you can impress upon her how problematic this is for bi guys, how so many bi guys aren't out because of straight women like her. And you can have all these conversations and it may not result in her being any more attracted to bi guys or open to dating bi guys than she is right now. And then what? Do you stop being friends with her or do you let her have her sexuality as problematic as it might be? And you know, if you do a deep dive with everyone that you know and you do a deep dive on yourself, all of us at some point have some problematic shit going on in our sexualities, in our desires. We all do. We all have something problematic. It might be a victory for you if you can just get your friend to admit that this is how I feel. These are the people I'm attracted to. I recognize that it's problematic and I own that, but what can I do about it? Besides owning it and recognizing it and being as respectful as I possibly can about this limitation so as not to create or reinforce biphobia or bi erasure or anything else that's shitty and awful and we all should be committed to rolling back and undoing. Because that's probably about as far with her as you're going to be able to get. You can't force her to want to fuck people she doesn't want to fuck. You can force her to think about whether she doesn't want to fuck some people because she doesn't want to fuck them or because she doesn't think she's supposed to want to fuck them or people told her that those people are unfuckable and undesirable. And maybe she'll reassess, as some people have. I reassessed my desires. There are lots of straight women out there and some bi women out there with bi guys that they wouldn't have started to date. They wouldn't have dated them if they were out and bi initially, but they were with them for a while and then they had to weigh the guy that they come to know and love versus their prejudices around dating bi guys when the guy came out to them. In some cases, a lot of those women are still with those guys. Maybe your friend will be in that position one day and her mind will open and she'll be able to watch her boyfriend or husband suck a dick without thinking he's been emasculated in any way. And I certainly don't think there's anything emasculating about sucking a dick myself personally. Maybe she'll get there. Maybe she won't. Or you can avoid that entire conversation just by looking at your friend and saying nothing hotter than watching a dude fuck a dude. Your loss. Hey, Dan. Just listening to the woman who's going to be a maid of honor in her bipolar friend's wedding and can't do it anymore. And I would say, don't do anything with her anymore. Cut her off. It's okay. Um, I'm the bipolar one, and my dear friend that I was leaning on cut me off a few years ago, and it was really, really painful, but probably necessary. And we took two years off and then reconnected and we're now best friends again. But I no longer think that I need to use her as my therapist. Um, I have, I take better care of myself and my own bipolar now. So respect your impulse and cut her off and don't feel guilty. If you're meant to be friends, you can renegotiate that in a couple of years. 
Hey, I wanted to respond to the caller about uh, being gay in Jerusalem. Uh, I'm an American. I was raised in America, but I was raised ultra-Orthodox Jewish. And as an adult, after I've stopped being religious, I've visited Jerusalem. And it's a really interesting city. And it's kind of my experience relates what the caller said. But uh, you have to realize that Jerusalem is a religious city. You've got religious Jews, religious Muslims, religious Christians. Everybody is there for religion. So there's not really going to be like a gay scene, but that said, everywhere there's going to be gay people. And so you end up just having a lot of people having sex in parks. And I had a really great experience having sex in parks there. I had an awesome threesome with two guys. It was so much fun. Um, and I don't think Jews are going to kill you if you have sex with them, especially not in Jerusalem. There are some places I wouldn't push my luck, like maybe New Square in America, but in Jerusalem, you have so many conflicting different mini cults that everybody's a bit more open-minded and accepting. Um, I mean, they're not pro-gay or anything, but I wouldn't be too worried. I think you should go out there and have fun. And if somebody starts following you, just walk to a dark corner somewhere and go have sex in the bushes. Um, it'll be great. And if you're specifically looking for bushes to have sex in, I recommend Gan Ha'atmot right around there um, on the western side at night. There is like always 20 people wandering around um it's like a mini sort of gay community hangout people just talk and sometimes they fuck and sometimes they just chill out and hang out um so i would say go for it enjoy it but i don't think you're going to find a boyfriend or a lover or anything there <laughs> hey dan straight guy calling to leave a comment about your rant about stealthing you gave the advice of an awesome move, reaching down to feeling if the condom was broken. I wanted to give the advice that everybody should do that, not only because it is the responsible thing to do, but also because it can be really hot. I had a female partner at one point that was very concerned about condoms breaking, and she totally pulled that move. I didn't realize what she was doing at the time until you described it on your show. And I put the two pieces together of what she had told me prior and she would incorporate clit stimulation and fondling. Very fun, very hot. I think anyone straight gay in between can totally incorporate that and make it a very hot experience. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. I will be appearing at the Palace of Fine Arts Theater in San Francisco on September 15th, 2017 for a live installment of Savage Love. Tickets are available on Ticketmaster.com and on the Palace's website at www.palaceoffinearts.org. If you like my political rants at the top of the show, you will love Blabbermouth, the Stranger's weekly political podcast with me, Rich Smith, and our host, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, Eli Sanders. Get Blabbermouth wherever you get your podcasts. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for